0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, some of you, it's a good morning. Some of you are still waking up for whatever reason. Uh, but nevertheless, we are glad that uh, you are here to join us. If you're new to Christ Bible Church or have recently uh, begun attending, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here. I will note, uh, it's very full in here. Praise God. Uh, but luckily, this will only last hopefully another six to eight weeks as we uh, are working towards expanding the sanctuary, uh, and so bear with us as we fill in chairs wherever we can uh, for the next few weeks, um, but there will be comfortable seating for all come hopefully Easter, so uh, that's our goal. Um, but anyway, uh, we're glad that you are here to join us uh, as we continue through uh, the book of Second Peter. Uh, If you didn't grab a journal last week uh, when we started the book of 2 Peter, they're in the back, uh, it's just the text of Scripture on one side, blank pages on the other, so you can take notes as we preach through uh, the entire book. Feel free to grab that at any point uh, during the service if that would be a helpful resource to you. But let's dive in uh, to the Word of God in the book of 2 Peter, verses 5 to 11 this morning. For this very reason... Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do look forward to that day when Christ welcomes us into your eternal kingdom. Lord, we long for this long road to end, to enter into that eternal destination where we get to rejoice with you uh, for eternity. Lord, we know that the calling before us is difficult. Lord, that you have called us to a high standard to live a life that is pleasing, and so we pray that as we read your word this morning, that the encouragement that Peter gives to the church would indeed be heard by us, not just simply understood in our minds, but Lord, that it would enter into our hearts and cause us even to move with our feet as we live to glorify you and to bring you praise. Father, help us to grow this morning. May the Spirit empower us to rightly understand your word and apply it to our lives. We ask that you would do this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the questions that plagues modern society today is the question of purpose. Constantly, everywhere you go, you hear people asking, what my purpose is? How do I fit into this world? What was I made to do? Why do I even matter? But at the most foundational level, as we gather as Christians, we understand that these questions are answered. When we find ourselves rooted in Jesus, when we see that he has called us, as we talked through last week in verse 3, we don't have to ask ourselves the question, where do I belong or what is my purpose? As Christians, we know that we belong to God and we are called to bring him glory. We are called to live for and through Jesus. And Peter has opened up these verses saying, There's a calling that you have received, fellow Christians, a calling to follow Christ. And it was a result of the divine power of Christ working in you. And now Peter is going to continue and to discuss two ramifications that every Christian has because Christ has acted through his power to save them. And the two things are this this morning. There is a consequence of your calling and there is a confirmation of your calling. There is a consequence in your life because of what Christ has done when he called you to salvation and there is also a confirmation of this. This is what Peter is simply saying this morning. Because Jesus called you by his own divine power, there is now a response that must take place. This response then in turn validates Uh, that initial calling. So you are sure that it indeed did happen. There is a consequence of your calling and a confirmation of your calling. So he begins in verse 5 by saying, for this very reason. What reason? Because Jesus has saved you, everything that follows now you can apply and live for. Because Christ has worked through his own power and his own purposes, you have an obligation to him. What is that obligation? What is that consequence? To live a life of increasing uh, uh, increasing virtue, increasing knowledge, all of these things, these characteristics of Christ. Peter says simply, supplement your faith. Now it's necessary to pause here because before we jump into this character development and what it looks like, we have to kind of unpack what he means by supplement your faith. Sometimes it's unhelpful when Christians read this because they begin to ask questions. Does this mean that the faith that Jesus provided is somehow deficient? That it's not complete? That I need to do something else in order to really make it effective? That's not what Peter is saying. If you were with us when we went through Ephesians, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians for the first few chapters takes a sledgehammer and just pounds it into our heads that we are saved by faith alone, not through our own works, but the work of God. Peter is not disagreeing with the Apostle Paul here. He is saying you are saved by the divine work of God in verse three. What we have here is something different. When he says supplement your faith, He's not saying that you need to do something to make your faith effective. He means that we are to cooperate with God without thinking about the price of our cooperation. Because God has acted, I now have a natural response that should follow. And indeed, the Greek word here that's at the beginning of this passage, when we see the word supplement your faith, is the same word at the very end in verse 11 when it says, we have been richly provided for by Jesus in regards to Christ bringing us all the way home to heaven. And so you have bookmarks on the end of this section. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty, all working together. Peter is affirming something beautiful. The way that we live matters. God brings all things to pass. Neither one is exclusive from the other. Christianity and indeed scripture has affirmed this from the very first day. Peter says there is a demand for faithful living that must be balanced by a a reminder of God's sovereign hand in bringing his people all the way to their heavenly prize. And so we can read this section this morning and understand that our actions indeed do matter. And never forgetting that apart from God, we are doomed. Both things are necessary to understand as we read this list and seek to become the people that Peter is imploring us to become. Further, we should read this list and realize that apart from from God's power infusing us, we will never be able to be the people he calls us to be, the people that he lists here. And so we have a reminder here to supplement what God gave us, to infuse our faith with a continued growth that's made possible by the Spirit of God that's constantly bringing us to flee from sin and run towards God. This is the Christian life Peter desires for us. We also need to read Peter in context. Peter is correcting a certain false teaching uh, that has been uh, given to some of these believers. If we go, when we get to chapter 2, we'll see that there is a teaching that is being taught that says, your life, your actions don't really matter. Because Jesus has saved you, do whatever you want. It's a free-for-all. But Peter is saying, that is not true. That's a lie. You can't just do what you want, how you want, because Jesus died for your sins. Peter's words here are meant to provide a correction to a false teaching regarding the way Christians should live in response to the saving work of Jesus. If they are indeed saved, their lives will produce a reflection of Christ. It's a timely reminder because when people first hear of this concept of God's sovereignty, uh, the way that he brings all things to pass, there's sometimes a tendency to become passive. To say, well, God is doing everything, he's bringing all of his plan to fruition, he established things before the foundation of the world, and so many people become passive, and God's sovereignty, this teaching of God's sovereignty, the way that he rules uh, his creation, wasn't taught that frequently for the last 100, 200 years. Only in select circles did you even hear words like sovereignty. And so people today are beginning to hear of it as I think there's a type of movement happening and people are falling in love with scripture again and learning to read it and be encouraged by it. They're saying, wow, God's sovereignty, he brings all things to pass. But when they hear that, there's a tendency by some to become passive or apathetic in their pursuit of holiness and faithful living. Peter's reminding us this morning that the Christian life is a life of constantly pursuing God, and in doing so, seeing that we are constantly growing, having increasing amounts of virtue, knowledge, self-control, all the attributes that he lists here. And in order to do this, we need the divine power that even brought us to salvation. God's decree, our actions, working in cooperation. Simply put, believers can afford to be passive about their stewardship of God's call. Possessing these characteristics and living as Peter says we are commanded to by Christ is not what saves them, but Peter's instead arguing that all of these characteristics flow out of what God has done through his divine power. We should all realize as we look at this life put forth by Peter this morning that we need God's power if we are going to grow into God's people. The way that we are able to become the people of God Uh, And the people that God wants us to become is through his ongoing work of renewal in our hearts and our minds as he refines us into the image of Christ. And so let's go back now to this point in verse 5. You are obligated to change because Christ has changed you. Change how? By growing, by becoming a clear reflection of who you are in your new identity. You once were lost you were broken. You were cut off. You were destined for destruction. But Christ, through his divine power, has called a person, and that is no longer the case. Their identity has changed. Their trajectory has changed. He has made you a part of his family, Peter is saying. He has changed you. You are now a son or daughter of God. And if you are a Christian, you are called to be a reflection of Christ. And if you're going to be a reflection of Christ, you need to live like Christ. Because Jesus has changed you, you should change. Simply put, changed people change. We know this to be objectively true. If there's something in your life that causes a fundamental shift, it changes all the other aspects of your life, right? For many of us, it was marriage, right? You were single, you were autonomous, you did whatever you want, however late you wanted, and it didn't really matter. But then you got married and you were one flesh and there was this other person now that you had to consider when you were making your schedule and your plans when your friends called you at 10 o'clock at night and said, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch sports till 2 a.m., right? You used to say, awesome. Now you were like, I don't know if that's a good idea, right? There's a fundamental shift that's happened because your identity has changed. You are now a husband, You are something different or a wife than you were before. There are so many aspects of your life that are affected by this. The same is true for Christianity. It's an even more monumental change than becoming a husband or a wife. We should expect that when we become Christians that our life should be marked by increasing change as we live according to the divine power and calling of Christ when he moves us from the depths of sin into salvation. And so Peter here gives us these attributes to say, this is what that change looks like. If someone was to ask, what is a Christian? Who is a Christian? How do I identify a Christian? He says, this is what their life should look like. Looks like somebody who was built on that foundation of faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. But you might say, what do these things that Peter mentions even mean? Depending on your English translation, you might even have different words that the translators used here. So let's spend a moment to quickly go through them. First, he lists virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is... Somebody who is virtuous is somebody who expresses care for those that are around them. Somebody who, when those, uh, those that are around them see them, say, that's a good person. Look at the way that they care for other people. Look at the way they conduct themselves. They have a high moral code. They live uh, responsibly and, and conduct themselves wisely in civic duties. Then he says knowledge. What is knowledge? This seems to be a little bit more amorphous. But knowledge here, as Peter is talking, is information about Jesus and what pleases him. It's the kind of knowledge that comes from reading, thinking, and discussing life as a Christian. If we want to grow in Christ-like goodness and knowledge, we should have a hunger and desire to grow in our knowledge of Christ. Self-control, this is moderation. An ability to have restraint, to resist immediate gratification of good things, and to have control Over their emotions. It's the complete opposite of the lifestyle that we'll see is taught by these false teachers in 2 Peter 2, who feel no obligation to control themselves or to obey Jesus. Instead, Peter says they're found denying the sovereign Lord who bought them in chapter 2, verse 1, and at ease following their own evil desires, chapter 3, verse 3. Steadfastness. Just as self control is moderation in regards to good things, steadfastness, or many of your Bibles probably have the word perseverance here, uh, is the willingness to put up with tough times because of the promise of better times ahead. Somebody who possesses steadfastness isn't uh, knocked off course when things don't go according to plan. They're able to be faithful. They're rocks in the midst of storms that are not moved and tossed to and fro. Godliness. Godliness is a devotion and awareness to God and of God in all aspects of life. A godly person is marked by their loyalty loyalty to God and the respect that they have towards God. They're pursuing God. They see God in all aspects of their life, working out uh, his plan. And finally, brotherly uh, brotherly kindness and love. This is a care for believers and indeed even others. John thirteen twenty five. when Jesus is talking to the disciples, says this, By this you will know, they will know that you belong to me, by the love that you have for one another. Brotherly kindness or brotherly love is that kind of desire to actually care about other Christians. Right? It seems like it shouldn't be that difficult, but indeed uh, we do see this lacking in many different areas, in many churches in America. But Peter says, you are called to express brotherly kindness and love, to care for other believers, and indeed even the world around you. I will note that we shouldn't read this and say, well, I can't develop self-control because I first don't have knowledge, and so I won't worry about self-control in my life. I'll live impulsively because I need to seek knowledge, right? Or we shouldn't say, I can't have brotherly love, I can't care about other Christians yet because you know, I haven't learned to persevere well yet. And so I'm going to work on perseverance and I'll worry about brotherly love later. Peter is not saying this is an order of growing in the, in the Christian life. He is giving us a list, a comprehensive picture of what does a Christian look like. You should be able to work on both things simultaneously. If you don't have brotherly love, you shouldn't say, well, I'll get to that once I develop perseverance. You should work on both. That's the call that Peter is saying to us here. The attributes that are listed should not be read or understood as relying on each other, like building blocks, but as a web that is locking together. And as this web is built, it becomes stronger and strengthens the life and the testimony of a Christian. The life of a believer, according to Peter, should be marked by these things. This is what a mature believer looks like. If you're here and you desire to grow in your life and you want somebody to disciple you, this is an excellent way of determining whether or not that person should speak into your life. If you are looking at somebody and thinking, oh man, that would be a really great person. I'd love to learn from them. They seem so knowledgeable, but when you look at their life, they're not full of love and care for other Christians. That's probably not a person that you should let disciple you. So on a side note, believers should desire these things, And we should see this as a way of identifying mature believers who could even pour into our own lives and encourage us and help us to grow into the people that Scripture calls us to believe. These characteristics that Peter lists are testimonies to our hope, testimonies to our priorities, to our faith, to outsiders, and as Peter will note here in verses 8-11, through indeed even to ourselves. In verse 8 here now, he turns from this list of attributes and says, if you have these things, you won't be ineffective and unfruitful. Again, this is a stumbling block. People read this, and they immediately hear the word unfruitful, and they think of evangelism. For many Christians, for whatever reason, we hear the word be fruitful, and it's like two things, either have kids or save people. Right, And if I'm not saving people, if there's not people that are coming to faith in my life, that means I'm not being fruitful. And so we read this list and we say, oh, well, if somebody has all these things, they will be producing lots of evangelism, uh, evangelism and lots of people will come to know Christ through them. That's not always the case. One of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century took 25 years to convert a single person when he went to India. Right? And he's known and started an entire movement. Christians shouldn't read this and just jump to saying, bearing fruit means conversion. Peter has something else in mind. He is concerned about the believers being effective in the sense that they are actively living out their calling, that they are going to not be ineffective and unfruitful, but instead they will produce an assurance in their life that they are indeed saved, that they do belong to Jesus. Their life will be something that, as they live, it produces the outcome of bringing them faithfully to that final day when Christ welcomes them to the entrance of heaven. The negatives in verse 8 and 9 are a parallel to verse 10 and 11. Peter recognizes there's a clear temptation to become people who are simply stalled out, who are not moving because of apathy. They struggle to live lives that honor God, honor the calling that God has given them, and instead of being full of confidence in their salvation and growing in their effectiveness of applying the truth of Christ's redemption to their lives, they simply have no growth. They're not changing. They're complacent in their relationship and their pursuit of God. And Peter says their lack of care about growing in Christian character reveals that they do not truly know God nor have tasted his salvation. Peter says they're blind, nearsighted, forgetting Christ died to cleanse them. They are victims of the moment, living only for what is directly in front of them. But he says if you're increasing in this way, conversely, you will be productive. You will be effective because you are growing towards Christ and towards his eternal kingdom. Your relationship with Christ is growing. You know him more and more. This is hard work. But the reality is that the more we reflect Christ, the more we grow in these areas, the easier it is to become a person of self-control, for example. The hardest time is the first time to resist. And you say, I'm going to follow God. I want to honor you, God. I'm going to resist and live honorably here. And so we practice self-control, and it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier and a little bit easier. It's being productive. Our faith is being lived out and applied, and we look back and see that, Christ has worked. He called us, and now we see the effect of his calling. We are more faithful to him. We have a growing sense of confidence in him. But the temptation is to become passive, to do nothing. For many Christians, it's to say, I said a prayer. I got baptized. I'm good. Me and God, were cool. I did everything he asked of me. But Peter is saying, look at your life. See if that confession was genuine. If it was, your faith will be productive, and you will have confidence in your salvation. You will see God working in your own life as you desire what God desires more and what the world desires less and less, and in doing so, growing closer and closer to him. We know how confidence works. The first time we do something is the hardest. But then we say, actually, I think I can do this. I always think of diving boards. Diving boards. Right? When I was a kid, we would go occasionally to uh, a local pool that has a high dive. Right? And high dives are really cool until you get on top of them, for me. Uh, you're climbing up the ladder. You've grown the confidence to finally jump off of this. But then you get your toes on the edge. I don't know, they're maybe eight feet tall. But for me, you stand off the edge, you look over, and what was eight feet now seems like 80,000 feet. And you're not so sure you can actually jump into this pool. Your confidence is wavering the sound of that kid that just backflopped right before is ringing in your ears. You're saying, I don't think this is a good idea. You would go back down the ladder, but your little brother's behind you. And you know he's about to do a backflip. You can't go backwards. So you do the hard thing, you trust, and you jump. You land in the water, you swim to the side, and then you go back up. And the next time, it's easier and easier and easier the rest of the day because you've grown in your confidence. The Christian life is similar. God saves. He empowers us with his spirit, which causes us to choose him over the world. Who we are begins to change, slowly, but it does. We desire to become the people who have self-control rather than people who indulge to become people who are strong in our morals, to grow in our knowledge of the faith and the work of Christ, to control our emotions and our impulses, to share our faith boldly, to honor God and our finances, to be honorable members of society, to be aware of the work of God in our life. And as we grow, we realize just how much God is working in our lives, which then reinforces our confidence to continue to live in pursuit of him. This is what Peter is pointing towards when he says this final plea. Therefore, confirm your calling and election. You will never fail. Fall, sorry, fall. Confirm your new identity, your eternal destiny. Confirm that Christ indeed has called you and made you new. What is the confirmation of your calling? For Peter, it's sanctification. Sanctification is this big word that we encounter in Scripture, but it's important to know. It's the ongoing work of God in purifying a believer. It's the process which over the course of somebody's life, they become more and more like Jesus. This is what Peter is telling us. The fact that you are growing more and more into the character and the type of person that reflects Jesus is indeed a confirmation from God that you've been marked by his grace and been delivered from the power of death by his own divine power. How many times have you heard the question, how do I know I'm a Christian? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're asking that very thing. Peter's response is another question. He simply asks, what does your life say? Christopher Green helpfully summarizes this point well in his commentary when he says this, without contributing anything to our salvation, the acid test of the genuineness of our faith is that either we make costly life changes on the basis of it, or we treat sin and judgment as irrelevant to a Christian. What does this mean? It means that if we truly accept Christ as Lord, we follow him as Lord. We make costly changes to our life that show that we indeed have been changed, that we belong to something new. This sounds simple, but modern Christian culture in America... I like to use the analogy, they think they're Batman. Why do I say Batman, right? Because they want a Robin for Jesus. They want a guy who's going to travel with them. He's pretty cool. He's powerful. He can do some good things. He's in the sidecar. They're the ones driving. He's only really there in case Batman gets overwhelmed and he needs to be bailed out. The Christian looks at Jesus and says, you're only really there for when I get in trouble, but as far as the direction, as far as what I'm going to do with my time, my talent, my treasures, that's really up to me. I'll listen to your input, Jesus, but at the end of the day, the one who's going to make the final decision is me. You're Robin, I'm Batman. But Peter says, if you have genuine faith, your life will be marked not by the pursuit of things that lead to your own glory, but by the pursuit of that which brings glory to God to become a reflection of God that other people see and don't say, what a great man, or what a great woman. But when they see you, they say, what a great God they have. To realize that it's God who drives and God who has the final say about what our lives should be like. When Peter says you will never fall, he isn't saying here that you'll never fall short of the ideal. If that was the case, all of us could just pack up and leave. We know that we fail, that we give in to sin all the time in our life. But what he is saying here when he says, you will never fall, he's saying you will never fall from God. He means that you will not fail to enter into that eternal glory, that you won't have your confidence in your salvation shaken by your own inability or by the temptations of this world. You will remain firmly in God. Peter points this out when he finishes in verse 11 and says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we faithfully live and pursue God, he is working and bringing us closer and closer to that final destination. Our efforts are tools that Jesus uses to prepare us to live with him. And in the end, I believe that we will see that though there was indeed human responsibility to constantly seek growth in Christ. At that final stage, we will see indeed that it was Christ working in and through us the entire time. He is the one who sustains his people and we can be confident that because he has said he will do it, he indeed will. Peter is clear this morning. Because we've been changed by God, because he's given us a new identity as his redeemed people, we have an obligation to be changing people, to live faithfully for him, seeking to grow and reflect him in our world today. God is sovereign. We have responsibility. We must affirm both as we come to him. And we can have confidence in our salvation as we see God's power working in our lives, as we seek to become the people he's called us to be. He is the one who calls. His calling creates a consequence in our lives in which we are caused to have increasingly grow, uh, uh, lives that increasingly reflect Christ, which then confirms that initial calling, giving us confidence in our salvation. Because of sin, there's a constant temptation to be idle rather than to work hard for Christ. But Peter implores us this morning if you are redeemed, you will grow. It's the natural consequence of the divine work of Jesus when he calls you to salvation. And so we should finish by asking the simple question. Are we becoming the people, the persons, the individuals that Christ has called us to be? Are we becoming the church that Jesus has called us to be? We should look at this list and be able to have a heart evaluation and say, am I pursuing Jesus? Am I committed to growing, to becoming the best reflection of him that he is going to make me become? A few questions for evaluation as we finish this morning. First, what characteristics do you see yourself lacking that Peter lists here? As you look at all of these things Peter says Christians should have, what do you look and your heart skips a beat because you're a little worried? Go to God this morning and plead that he would work in your life to empower you to grow in those areas. Number two, which characteristics that Peter lists do you see in your life? Go to God and offer him praise For he is confirming his calling on your life as you begin to emulate him in these areas. And number three, who in your life do you have that can help you grow in your relationship with God? Who in your life is the mature believer that possesses these characteristics that might be able to make time to meet with you, to encourage you, to help you grow that you might become the people that God has called you to be? Write that name down and reach out to them become somebody who is committed to being discipled and committed to growing in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the high calling of our faith, that because you have worked according to your own power, Lord, we now have the great responsibility to pursue you and to live faithfully for you. We know that we are unable to do this on our own. Lord, that we need your power We need things that you give us like the local church to encourage us and prod us to keep moving and keep pursuing you, to not take the easy road and become apathetic, to stall out in our faith, but Lord, to live lives that are marked by an increasing pursuit of you, an increasing level of intimacy with you, of love for you, for the things that you love and resisting the things that the world loves. Lord, let us become the people that you call us to be. Let Christ's Bible Church be the church that's full of these kinds of people. Lord, the people that have brotherly love, who have perseverance, who have self-control, who are full of the knowledge of God and a desire to know you and your word. Lord, the people who live virtuous, who care about our communities, who honor our civic duties and try our best to help those that are around us. Lord, we desire to be these kinds of people. We desire to be this kind of church. Help us to grow, Lord. Help us to faithfully live as we long and wait for that final day when we see Christ bringing us into our eternal place. Lord, we rejoice in the work of Christ, the work of Christ that calls, the work of Christ that sustains, and the work of Christ that grants us eternity. We give him all the praise and all the glory in our life. We know that without him, we are destined for failure. We are destined for destruction. But because of him, we can rejoice in your saving hand. Amen.